We're going to be uh, in the book of Daniel this morning, uh, both chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and open your Bible up there, uh, please feel free to do so. If not, the scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. Uh, but let's first begin with a word of prayer. <coughs> Father, we thank you for this morning. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to give back to you both uh, through our money and, and offering as well as uh, with our song and our praise and worship. God, I pray now that as you have already begun doing so in each of our hearts, God, that you would remove distraction, <clears throat> that you would help us to focus on what it is you have for us this morning. God, I pray that as we, we, as we read your word, that it would be opened up to us, and that your Holy Spirit would allow it to be implanted into our hearts so that it might take root in our lives and the way that we live and the way that we treat others. God, we thank you for the chance to encounter your word, for the chance to encounter your spirit. Lord, we know we're worthy of neither, so we consider this opportunity to be one for which we should give ultimate thanks. And so, Lord, we thank you again to hear your word and to live it. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> I probably, like some of you uh, in the room this morning, uh, watched a good deal of TV on Friday. Uh, I don't know if anybody else watched uh, any of the inauguration ceremonies Friday, uh, but I watched quite a bit of it. I have never really, <coughs> to my own uh, embarrassment, <coughs> I've never really sat down and watched an actual presidential inauguration. I'm 33 years old. I've been through several. Uh, I've just never actually sat and watched all of it. I found it uh, incredibly interesting, all of the history behind the different things that are done and, and kind of the pomp and, 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 and circumstance of all of it, just the, uh, the going through all the tradition and, and uh, just this, this weird like um, um, feeling of, of, of everything being in the moment, but also connected to hundreds of years of history and, and kind of the, the, the interesting factors of, of all of that going on in front of me. And as I was reading this, and as I was thinking about today, uh, and the scripture that we're going to be looking at here in just a second, um, a question came to my mind, uh, a question that I've thought about a lot, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, a question of how, as a Christian, uh, whose ultimate allegiance ought to be to God, how we deal with that intention with also being a good and productive and valued member of a society, a human society, an earthly society how we walk that fine line between honoring what God has blessed us with in this country, and, and not only in this country, I don't mean it just in a national sense, but I mean even here in Grandview and, and civically speaking, and the way that we kind of operate day-to-day -day lives and making the world a better place, how God has all given us that opportunity and that gift of living in, in this culture, in this town, in this, in this uh, state, in this nation, uh, given us the freedom that we have and, and the opportunity that we have to work alongside of other like-minded people to try to make the world a better place. And how we, how we live in that tension of basically being citizens of two worlds. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven and citizens of the kingdom of this earth. Those who believe in and follow God have been throughout history some of the most important members of society. Some of the most important movers of society, making the world a better place. Here's just a few names of Christians who made the world a better place either through science or art or some other factor. Copernicus, Galileo, Isaac Newton, Bach, Michelangelo, Rembrandt, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, 
Gutenberg of the printing press, George Washington Carver, Charles, uh, Charles Dickens, Frederick Douglass, just about every president of the United States of America has proclaimed to be a Christian. And so we know from past experiences, both dating all the way back to the founding of Christianity, as well as even in our own present circumstances, that Christians can and do make a valuable difference in the world around them. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Shouldn't the world be better because Christians are in it? Our values are values that make the world a better place. Our values are values that, that, that value other people's lives and put other people above ourselves, that value love and life and freedom above all else. And because of that, those values ought to make this world a better place. At the same time, we have an ultimate responsibility to the kingdom of God over the kingdom of this world. Many famous resistors of society were also Christian. Martin Luther perhaps one of the more famous in the Protestant tradition, stood against the entire Roman Catholic Church who was the power that was in control at that time in order to bring about change in a corrupt system, both theologically and politically as well. He stood against them and basically became the father of Protestantism, without whom you and I would not be sitting in a Baptist church today. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a self-proclaimed pacifist, a devout Christian, One of the more important authors, Christian authors of the 20th century, wrote one of the best Christian books of the 20th century in the cost of discipleship. Again, a self-proclaimed pacifist who was part of a group that led an assassination attempt against Adolf Hitler. Martin Luther King Jr., perhaps the most famous resistor in our own culture. Mother Teresa is another one. You might not think of her immediately when you think of resistors, uh, but let me give you a reminder of something she did uh, a little bit over 20 years ago. In 1994, Mother Teresa was invited by the Clinton administration uh, to come to the White House during a national prayer breakfast uh, and give a talk. That was one of the few times she had been in that position. Uh, and I remember actually watching this occur. I was, a, I was just 11 years old at the time, but I remember hearing uh, about this event. And she stood there in front of the administration, in front of the president and his wife, as well as many other people in powerful positions in the United States. And she basically called the United States out for its culture of death, meaning abortion. Uh, she said that any culture like the United States, any, any, any of us that are, uh, any cultures like in the Western society that view ourselves as so progressive and, and, and caring about human rights should not be doing those sorts of things. And again, you wouldn't think of her as a resistor, but this woman who was devoutly Christian and, and dedicated her entire life to making sure that she loved on the least of these as Jesus told her to, stood in a place filled with people of power and called them essentially to change and return. There are times when the values of this world conflict with the values of the kingdom of God. And the old cliche, in the world but not of the world, seems to fall a little short, in my opinion. There are probably times when we should be of the world, or maybe at least for the world, for the betterment of society, to see our culture, our country, our state, our community better themselves to become a place with less crime, to become a place that is more politically stable. These are things that we ought to be about as Christians, as as lovers of God and lovers of peace. So maybe there's a different way to look at it. Maybe there's a way to live in that tension of being a citizen of two worlds. So this morning I want to put before you the idea of how we live in this world, to honor God 
and change the world and to do so in that order. When it comes to how we should engage the world as citizens and citizens of earthly kingdoms while also being a citizen of a heavenly kingdom, we should look first to scripture, obviously. The Bible, though, appears to be a bit of a mixed bag when it comes to this idea. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 13, and Peter echoes him in his epistles, that we should be subject to our governing authorities. And Jesus said to render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar in Matthew 22. Yet at the same time, we see people resisting the powers that be in Scripture and being rewarded for it. The Hebrew midwives lie to and disobey the king of Egypt in Exodus 1 in order to maintain the, uh, the safety of the Hebrew male babies, which allowed Moses to grow up in safety. The pagan prostitute Rahab commits treason against her own people and is blessed for it by God's people in Joshua 2. And with a whip, Jesus drives money changers out of the temple in John chapter 2. It is in the midst of it is in the midst and spirit of this tension that we learn of the story of Daniel, a man who embodies this tension, a man who walks in this tension, who lives in the fine line between being a citizen of this world and being a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so again, we're going to look first at Daniel chapter one, verses three through seven. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Now, there's a lot going on behind the scenes here. Obviously, you read the first couple of verses, you see the uh, context in which this book is written, in which we come to be. The people of Judah had just been overthrown by the king of Babylon. The king had been embarrassed and, and taken over, taken into captivity along with all of the people uh, into Babylon. And not only that, they had even taken some of the goods out of the temple uh, and they had put them in the temple of their gods and the, and the Babylonian gods, kind of adding insult to injury. Uh, and then to do what many ancient powers did back then, and we still see some today. Nebuchadnezzar decides, the king of Babylon decides that not only uh, is he going to defeat uh, the Israelites, not only is he going to take them out of their land, but he's also going to take their land out of them. Uh, he's going to take their, their culture out of them. He's going to re-educate their theology, their, their religion out of them. And he does so by selecting the best and the brightest among the Hebrew youth. The ones that are pleasing to the eye and the ones that, that seem uh, uh, to be uh, intelligent and, and kind of a, a leadership material. And so he selects Daniel as well as some others uh, and he puts them through or begins to put them through basically a re-education process. Uh, another phrase we have for that is brainwashing. At least that's what Nebuchadnezzar attempts to do. 
He allows them to see Chaldean literature, Chaldean science, uh, all of their, the things that they have learned and the things that they're really good at. And he completely avoids and completely disregards the ways of the one true God that the Israelites worshiped. This is obviously a brainwashing attempt by Nebuchadnezzar. And we even see it in the way that his chief eunuch, Ashpenaz, renames Daniel and his friends. He changes Daniel's name, which Daniel, in case you're wondering, means God judges. Anytime you see the word El in Scripture, it is in in the Old Testament anyway, uh, it is a reference to God. And so Daniel's name bore the actual name or the actual reference to God. It wasn't Yahweh, but it was that El uh, in the Old Testament meaning God. And so Daniel means God judges. And his name is changed to Belteshazzar which I don't expect any of you to know exactly what that means because really we don't know exactly what it means. Much of the Babylonian culture is lost to us, uh, at least the language idea, and so we're not exactly sure what that means. Some people believe that uh, even the author of this book uh, purposefully miswrote the name so that he didn't have to actually write the name uh, that Nebuchadnezzar changed uh, Daniel's name to. But what we see in it and what's most important in this name is the first three letters, Bel. Bel was the chief god of the Babylonians. And so Daniel's name went from bearing his own God, Daniel, God judges, to bearing the God of his enemy that had just overthrown him, Belteshazzar, honoring the pagan, or, or honoring the main God of the Babylonian cult. This is who Daniel is now named after. And it's similar with the other three. If you look at the other three Hebrew children that are mentioned, uh, it's very similar. It's not Bel that they're named after, but they're named after different gods within the Babylonian pantheon. Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to remove all remnants of Jewish culture, all remnants of their religion from the Hebrews' youth, and to reprogram them, and then to allow them to be servants in his court so that the rest of the Jews could see the way that these men had been deprogrammed, how their faith had been stripped out of them, and allow them to lose faith in their old way of doing things and become complete citizens and completely devoted to the kingdom of Babylon. It's similar to just about every other culture war. In every other culture war, going back to the one uh, that happened in in the 1930s and 40s uh, during World War II to the one we have going on today, you know that the best way to change a culture or to change a society is get into the minds of the youth. Hitler did it. Uh, We still see many people on both sides of the culture war trying to educate youth toward the direction that we want them to go to. We do that to a degree, not like Hitler did, don't hear me say that, but we do that to a degree. That's why we believe children's ministry and youth ministry is important because it is important for us to get, uh, make sure that the mind of our youth is pointed toward God and not toward some other thing that the world might point them toward because we know that the ways of this world are at work in the minds of our youth and in the minds of our children. in the places of our school, I don't believe in Grandview, but certainly in other places, trying to bend the mind of our youth away from honoring God and towards a more humanistic kind of idea and way of doing life. It's been going on for centuries, literally, going all the way back to Daniel and even before that. It is a way to change people, to control people. But Daniel resists this to a degree. If you keep reading in chapter 1, he decides that the dietary laws, the food that he's supposed to eat, along with the king, he decides not to. 
Things end up going well for them because he essentially makes a deal with uh, uh, the chief eunuch over him and, and everything kind of works out because even though they don't eat the diet that Nebuchadnezzar is saying that they should eat, they end up getting stronger uh, because they are honoring God and honoring the laws, the dietary laws that God had placed upon them. So he resists in that sense. We know that Daniel resists later on as well. But even though Daniel is there against his will, and even though his name has essentially been changed from honoring God to honoring a God that he didn't believe in, he still doesn't become resentful. He still doesn't give up. Many people in his situation, again, imagine this. Imagine a foreign army, a foreign, not only army, but a foreign religious army coming into our world, coming to the United States, coming into this place, and taking us into captivity, taking us away from our home, back to their home, and then changing all of our names to honor their God. And then to try to re-educate our Christian faith out of us, to try to brainwash us and strip us of everything that we believe makes us, makes us good, uh, makes us uh, Christians, makes us followers of Jesus Christ, to strip us of all of that. Imagine being in that situation. If I were in that situation, my first response would likely be to be resentful, to shut down, to not want to do anything for Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe even to do as Diedrich Bonhoeffer did back in the day and try to lead and attempt a coup, some sort of thing, even if it had to be violent. I'm not, I don't believe in violence, but even if it had to be in order to make things right, that would be my first response because I don't want to give up what is true to me and I don't want to see the other side win and I certainly don't want to see our God's name diminished. But this is not the way Daniel responds. Instead, Daniel responds by resisting in some places, but also being an incredibly good member of society in other places. By being obedient to Nebuchadnezzar, the enemy, not only the political enemy, but the religious enemy of his people. Someone who wanted to see not only his people wiped off the face of the map, but his belief wiped off the face of the map. For some reason, Daniel, again, not only submits to Nebuchadnezzar, but seems to even work towards his good, if you read throughout the rest of the book of Daniel. Interpreting dreams when Nebuchadnezzar asks. Having positive interactions with Nebuchadnezzar. We'll read one here in just a second in, in Daniel chapter 2. But Daniel was simply being obedient to God by becoming a useful citizen of Babylon and a servant of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, when I say being obedient to God, Scripture tells us that this is the way that the Hebrews were expected to behave when they were in captivity. In Jeremiah 29, <clears throat> verses 4 through 7, the prophet Jeremiah records this as God's instructions for the way that the Hebrews were supposed to operate in the midst of captivity. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. How counterintuitive is that? The people that are about to take you over 
The people who want to see your demise and your country, your nation, your people, your religion destroyed, not only obey them, seek their welfare, God says. Seek the welfare of the city because its welfare is your welfare. Again, it seems completely backwards to the way that many of us, I believe I myself, would respond. But this is the command that God gives the people of Israel to be essentially, in our vernacular, to be good members of society, to be good, productive citizens of the kingdom of this world. And we see the results of that in Daniel chapter 2, verses 46 through 49. After Daniel has interpreted a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. This is Nebuchadnezzar's response. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering, an incense, be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. Daniel obediently serves Nebuchadnezzar and is blessed because of it. And Nebuchadnezzar, at least for this moment, honors God, showing that Daniel's behavior actually pointed society towards his God, the one true God, even though society didn't realize it. Even though Daniel is there against his will, he makes Nebuchadnezzar's life both better and easier. It's like a perfect soundtrack. And the movie that you love the most, think of your favorite movie. Think of those, those moments where the soundtrack swells and it comes to this, this head and this climax and everything's perfect. Braveheart's one of my favorite movies. And at the end, in, in, in kind of the, the, one of the final scenes when, uh, when William Wallace is, 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 expires, when he dies, uh, I can hear like the soundtrack in my head. It would be weird to see it without that. Uh, imagine going back and watching your favorite movie without any of the soundtrack. There's something about that soundtrack that just kind of goes underneath that makes the whole thing better. In the same way, Daniel makes everything around him better. He isn't the first one to do this. Joseph kind of did the same thing. Other Christians have done the same thing. Other God followers have done the same thing since then. The world should be a better place because we're in it. Society should be more productive. People should be uh, closer to what God would want society to look like. Things should be more peaceful, more, more, more positive because we are in the world. Just like the perfect soundtrack, everything works underneath to make things better. Daniel was, he walks the line between assimilation and resistance perfectly. Being a good, productive member of society, yet resisting when he needs to. Again, he assimilates with the Babylonian culture to some degree. He doesn't reject his new name. He doesn't say, don't call me that anymore. Uh, he doesn't revolt against Nebuchadnezzar because he is being obedient to his God back in Jeremiah 29. Yet he also resists at some points. He doesn't go along with the dietary restrictions. Uh, he decides not to, to pray to Darius in, in, in chapter 6, which ends him up, which puts him in a lion's den. And so we know that he does resist at times when he has to, yet he, he also plays the part 
apart when he needs to. Uh, and it's this, this, this weird kind of dynamic of, 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 of being in this gray area. And Daniel, just as much as anybody else in Scripture, perhaps uh, more, more obviously than anybody else in Scripture, walks that fine line perfectly that you and I can walk as well. He gives us the model for living as a citizen of two kingdoms, to honor God and change the world. <clears throat> for the world, as a Christian, the world you inhabit should be better because you are in it. We ought to be productive members of society. In my humble opinion, and I believe the testimony of Scripture, Christians should be the most artistic, the most intelligent, the most thoughtful, the most sometimes politically active, should be the ones pushing for change in the right direction, should be the ones standing up for the least of these when they are dishonored. That's what we do with the pro-life movement is we are a voice for the voiceless. We stand in the gap for those who cannot stand on their own. This is our goal. This is our mission in life. And we can do that by being those productive members of society. We can vote for the most godly candidates in each situation. We can try to vote for the most godly policies to be passed. We ought to be active in our societies, making this world look more like the kingdom of God every day. Regardless of how we feel about this world, regardless of how we know that this world is not our home, regardless of how we know that there are factors of this world that are totally against what our God wants them to be, we ought to be working for the betterment of the world just like Daniel did. The world ought to be better because we're in it. And regardless of who's in power, at all levels, from the president to the mayor, we honor our God by giving our whole self to improve the situation by honoring the authorities that Scripture has commanded us to do. We are for the world in that sense. Yet at the same time, we are for the kingdom first. The truth is the world is not your home. And your citizenship here, while it is incredibly important, is also temporary. When the values of this world lead us to disobedience, and the dishonor of our God, we must resist. Even as a ruler in Nebuchadnezzar's court, Daniel was never truly a part of the Babylonian world, the Babylonian system. Note that his name is changed by the chief eunuch, that his name is changed essentially by Nebuchadnezzar. But if you continue on with the narrative, he's not called Belteshazzar all over the place. He is occasionally by the Babylonians. But for the most part, throughout the rest of the book, we continue to refer to him as Daniel. He remains the one whose name means God judges, not the one whose name gives honor to Baal. He lives in that world, but his ultimate allegiance, his ultimate citizenship belongs in a different world. And so he honors God, and he changes the world in that order. So Christians, as we read the testimony of Daniel, our goal, our mission, is to make this world a better place only in so much, it is an, it, only in so much that it is an effort to honor and obey our God. There is simply nothing more important than obedience to our God. Specifically, as Americans, we ought to be 
loyal members, patriotic members of our society. Uh, like I said, when I was watching the inauguration Friday, just hearing all of the history, it was beautiful to know all of the things that were done. And, 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 and maybe even as a pastor, I didn't realize how much the Bible and God was weaved in to all of that. I, I should have known that, right? But, but seeing that and remembering just how much it is a core of, of who we are. It's a beautiful thing, and, and, and there's a good part of that that makes me happy to be an American, uh, that, that allows me to remember how, how deeply blessed I am by God to live in this free society. We ought to be good members of society. We ought to pledge our allegiance to this country and to its betterment, to its improvement, to its economic, to, its, to everything that is around us, to making this a better place. We ought to be and ought to have that sense of allegiance. Yet our ultimate allegiance lies in God's kingdom, not in this kingdom. And there is a fine line that needs to be walked. That in every situation, you have to ask yourself, do I give ultimate allegiance to my God or to the world that I live in? And in this day, when everything is so divided, and by the way, there was other stuff that happened Friday and Saturday that shows that our world was divided. I caught some of that on the news as well. In the midst of this divided culture, the most it's ever been in my life, perhaps some of yours as well, or reminiscent of, of during the Vietnam conflict, perhaps for some of you. This is the most divided that at least I remember it. And in the midst of this conflict, we must, as a Christian church, we must, as followers of Jesus Christ, make sure that every decision that we make, that every vote that we cast, that every candidate that we support, that every issue that we lobby for, that that all of that ought to be motivated by our allegiance to God before it is motivated by our allegiance to a political system, a political party, a political candidate, or even the betterment of our entire country. Our allegiance to God comes first. The kingdom of God first. America second. I know that sounds a little bold, right? But this is the truth of the scripture. Now, America comes in second. That's good, right? That's a good place for America to be. Maybe behind my family, but also that's a good place for America to be. My allegiance is to the betterment of this society and around us, but not at the expense of God's kingdom and my witness in God's kingdom. Daniel walked in that tension perfectly. Sometimes it put him in some very sticky situations. Sometimes he was applauded by the powers that be, like Nebuchadnezzar. Sometimes he was thrown literally to the lions because of his actions by the powers that be. He walked that tension. He did not find his meaning in the approval of others. He found his meaning in the obedience to God. And being obedient to God led him to be obedient to the powers that be until they intersected against the values of his God. Make the world a better place in an effort to honor your God. And never, ever let your kingdom identity become secondary to your worldly identity. You are a Christian first above all else. That is ultimately where your soul allegiance lies. In Jesus' day, it was the Roman world. In ours, there is a different power many of which that, that now we like, but we still must find ourselves in that tension of honoring God before the world, but honoring the world 
when it honors God. It's not easy. But with the Holy Spirit's wisdom, we can certainly walk that line. So this morning, during our time of invitation, I want you to just think and pray. I want you to pray for wisdom in this age. To be able to support the kingdom of God above all else. I want you to pray for humility. To regardless of your political opinions, who you voted for or who you didn't vote for, to submit to the will of God. And again, I want you to pray for wisdom moving forward in this divided era, in this divided culture, that God would lead you to make the best decision for his kingdom, not for yourself and not even for this world, the best decision for this kingdom. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. If you need to pray about this or anything else, uh, you can come down here and do that with me during our time of invitation. Uh, Bill and Lynn are going to lead us in a song of, of invitation after I pray. You move in whatever way God is calling. Father, once again, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for being here with us. God, we thank you for the truth of your scripture. Lord, we thank you for your servant, Daniel. God, we thank you for the way that he walked that line perfectly. And God, I pray that you would give us that same wisdom and that same courage. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I 